Patrick here with some exciting news. We now have 10 local communities of engineering leaders hosting in-person meetups all over the world. Yes, you heard that right. There are 10 local communities in cities all over the world. These groups are led by engineering leaders just like you who wanted to create a place to connect, to share insights, and tackle critical challenges in the job. To get involved, go to elc.community. Sign up if you haven't already. If you have signed up, make sure you update your location and we'll get you plugged in. We're launching local events all the time. You can find them and get involved again at elc.community. Today, the world is so complex that it's almost like navigating a minefield. And imagine if you're, or, or an asteroid field, actually. And uh, it's not like, like navigating an asteroid, asteroid field. And when you navigate an asteroid field, uh, if you don't turn uh, often, <laughs> you're going to be having some surprises. And so that's why iteration is so important. You need to release sometimes multiple times a day because the world is changing in front of you. And there are opportunities and obstacles that come up. Hello and welcome to the Engineering Leadership Podcast, brought to you by ELC, the engineering leadership community. I'm Jerry Lee, founder of ELC. And I'm Patrick Gallagher, and we're your hosts. Our show shares the most critical perspectives, habits, and examples of great software engineering leaders to help evolve leadership in the tech industry. You probably hear all the time, know your customer. We have to prioritize our customers' needs. These have become such dominant maxims in the tech industry. This episode is all about leveraging customer narratives as a transformative tool to help you deeply understand your customer, build successful products, and tech strategy with Marco Argenti, Chief Information Officer at Goldman Sachs. We cover why modern engineering leaders absolutely must understand the business. Marco shares his framework for creating a successful customer narrative we discuss shaping your engineering org around your customer promise and how all of that naturally extends into your product vision and strategy. We also talk about how to help your organization actually better understand the business, and we even get into best practices for investing in developer experience. Let me introduce you to Marco. Prior to joining Goldman Sachs, Marco served as the VP of Technology for AWS, overseeing all aspects of the product lifecycle of cloud services, including strategy, business planning, developer engagement, and leading several AWS technology areas. And before that, Marco spent several years as SVP and global head of developer experience and marketplace at Nokia, responsible for Nokia's developer ecosystem and app store across the company's entire product portfolio. Marco also serves on the board of directors of the Seattle Symphony Orchestra and the Pancreatic Cancer Action Network. He's also a member of the board of trustees of Carnegie Hall. Enjoy our conversation with Marco Argenti. Well, to kick this off formally, Marco, just wanted to say welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for joining us. How are things going today? Great. How are you? Not bad, you know, uh, getting ready to leave for West Virginia for a little camping trip. So we've got adventure on the mind, but I'm excited for our conversation. I guess to bring everybody in, you know, you've really had an interesting leadership journey, everywhere from being a professor to being the CTO of an optical and digital media company, being in the entertainment and games industry to leading tech at Amazon, and now you're at Goldman Sachs. Can you tell us a little bit about your career journey and how you transitioned in some of those different sort of those different spaces and any lessons that you've carried from place to place? You know, one of the things that I've tried to stick to was actually try to do in different forms, kind of the, you know, the same 
discipline throughout my career. I, I'm a little bit of a fan of, you know, you want to perfect something, you better kind of keep going at that instead of jumping from one thing to another. So, if, you know, if you're a tennis player, maybe continue to be a tennis player instead of trying 20 different sports. And so in careers, uh, sometimes endurance and sometimes uh, sticking to what you think you know and what you like, most important if you're really passionate of, uh, it tends to be a good advice that I've, I've been given and I tend to give. So I've always been in technology in different forms, but then technology became, uh, you know, such a broad uh, word that, you know, at that point you need the next level of definition. And so what has characterized uh, my career is in a way trying to kind of try to push the envelope and be, and be curious about things and try to somehow, you know, more or less successfully, but try to anticipate what, where the pack was going and kind of where the next trend. I started really early, you know, working on, uh, I had an internet uh, startup in uh, 1995. Uh, at that time, you know, it was still early days for uh, for the internet, especially for the web. You know, then was uh, sold to, to a Canadian company. And uh, when I was in Canada, I kind of decided, you know, I, th- I kind of thought, okay, with the internet being so content-centric, what could be the next thing that is added to the internet to actually make it more interesting? And I thought uh, maybe there is a transactional element to the internet, and now it's obvious. But so we started to kind of go from content production into more e-commerce. So we opened uh, one of the early e-commerce uh, like online stores into, in 1996, and then uh, turned it into more more of a technology provider because everybody at that point was starting to open e-commerce stores. And so we started to build uh, a suite of applications called uh, iFront, which was uh, used by some of the larger commerce providers as a backend. And so we started to cooperate with Microsoft and that kind of worked the e-commerce days. And so Towards the end of, of you know 2000 of the you know 90s and around 2000, uh, I was starting to think, okay, if the internet is now transactional and people do commerce on it and they buy and sell, and uh, you know why would they want to be always in front of their computer doing that? And maybe there is a, there is a mobile component to that. At that time, people were just you know kind of very skeptical. They were telling me that I was out of my mind because phones could, could barely make you know phone calls. I kind of realized that. Uh, Maybe I was in the wrong country, with all due respect, uh, because mobile really at the early 2000s in America was a little bit behind Europe. And so I decided to join a company. A friend of mine uh, did an IPO and they bought a mobile company in 2001. And remember, 3G was actually launched uh, in Europe first and in Asia before the US. So really the first data application started to be real in uh, around 2003 or so forth. And so I started, I ran uh, this uh, uh, wireless company called Wireless Solutions, where we started to do messaging applications, and then we started to do content applications, and then we started to do uh, more like multimedia and streaming music, everything on mobile. So that was fairly successful. And then, uh, you know, at one point I was starting to think, okay, maybe there is a way for the mobile web to kind of overcome some of the limitations. For example, I want to use it all the time, not only when I'm online, because sometimes I might be actually in a tunnel or in a subway, or maybe there is no coverage, and then the user experience really needs to be smooth and fluid. And so I became very interested in apps, uh, and that was about 2008. So uh, I was approached by Nokia, where uh, Nokia asked me to launch and run their app store, which at that time, Nokia had 60% market share. So they had the first smartphones. And so, you know, this was kind of really new thing. It was before the App Store from Apple. And so I ran that for Nokia. I was there and then I had multiple roles. I ended up being uh, in charge of developer relations, uh, all the digital content for Nokia until uh, about 2013, where I started to think, okay, maybe, you know, all these data centers that we have and all this, uh, you know, to have as a backend of that infrastructure, 
maybe that should be we should not own them. And so I thought that maybe the cloud was was a good thing. And so I got this call from uh, Amazon, and they asked me to first run their mobile unit. Uh, so I launched a bunch of products. Uh, all the mobile products like Cognito and, and API Gateway. I launched the IoT and then the whole serverless uh, movement. And I ended up launching and, uh, and running a number of services at AWS. So entering some very like new whole areas there. Finally, like, uh, you know, Goldman. Well, Goldman was uh, interesting because I started to realize that every company, in order to be successful, I'm always working with some of the AWS customers, needs to really master technology. There is no discount uh, in terms of your technology capabilities, uh, if you are not in technology, you need to be as good as the tech companies because today technology is so important. Imagine automotive, where uh, you know, like cars are today are all about uh, safety and uh, autonomous and battery management. Electrification are so important that essentially you are a software company. Healthcare with data science is the same thing, and obviously finance. So right now, finance is at the stage in which, in order to be a leader, you need to master technology as good. Uh, uh, and data science is good as uh, a tech company, in addition to knowing your own business. And so I found that incredibly fascinating. And that's why, you know, I decided to make the jump from being a technology provider to be, you know, someone that will be transformed by technology and actually like running the business through technology and for, with the purpose of, uh, of building a business. So. The, the thing that really strikes me is all of the different trends that you highlight and the thread that follows through all of them. So there's a lot of follow-up questions around some of sort of the subparts of each of those experiences that I want to get into. But I think first to zoom out, what really struck me was your ability to either make predictions or to rationalize some of the trends. Did you have a process around there or, or how did you come to those determinations when you're reflecting on the opportunities that are ahead or where technology is going, where your role could be to make an impact there? What was that process or conversation like for you? One of the things is uh, always about uh, listening to the signals around you because a lot of that stuff sometimes is hiding in plain sight. It's kind of obvious. And then you do a little bit of first principle thinking, like, you know, obviously, like I described with mobile or with the cloud, and it becomes obvious. You just need to question your own biases because once you are into a world or into a domain, everything looks like that domain and everything else fades in the background. But if you just step back one second, if you just listen to your clients, if you just listen to what's around you, and you just reflect out of first principle, then those patterns, they tend to become quite apparent. So there isn't really a magic formula. It's more like listening with a complete open mind. And if there is a bit of a meditation, a professional meditation practice is really to kind of be selfless with regards to your own biases. I think that's really what kind of gets you in front of something that became, becomes clear all of a sudden. Mm -hmm. And with like that that last part, because I know right now is a really exciting time for for Goldman. And when you're talking about how essential technology is to business and the the role that you want to play in there, what was that conversation like for you to make the the latest decision to to get involved with with Goldman? Yeah, one of the first questions that I asked was, uh, what are the problems uh, that we're trying to solve, and are they actually like problems that are difficult and they are at scale that can be impactful for customers? Because like every engineer is attracted uh, by big challenges. That's what really motivates an engineer. And so, you know, the engineer in me, which is the most majority of it, was just looking for those. And so, obviously, the challenges uh, for uh, someone like Goldman at the scale of Goldman are actually extraordinary from, a, from an engineering perspective. If you just think about the scale at which, which it operates, if you think about uh, the trends of uh, more and more data being available at faster and faster speed, uh, where uh, 
you need to make decisions that sometimes are decisions that are in real time, sometimes are decisions that are in like nanoseconds, literally for high frequency trading, or, uh, you know, it could be in very impactful decisions for portfolio management. And, uh, you know, you need to make decisions on behalf of your customers uh, all the time. And those strategies and those decisions that are generally based on data. And the way data arrives to us, the, day, the way data needs to be prepared and the way data needs to be analyzed and the way, you know, you reason on the data, both uh, automatically and also through humans, obviously, and the, that perfect intersection between automatic uh, and, and, and human-driven uh, decision-making, it's, it's super fascinating. It's one of the, it's, imagine it's like a, a puzzle made by a billion pieces or it is, uh, you know, a, 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 an equation with uh, tens of thousands of parameters. Uh, it's like those mind-boggling NP-hard type of problems that are just fascinating. One thing that has happened uh, is that not only the world has gotten faster, data has become uh, more available, but also, you know, in a way that generates noise if not uh, treated correctly, but also the sophistication of our clients has actually increased quite a bit. Everybody's moving towards more of a quantitative model. Clients on the institutional side, they demand to communicate with you electronically, to communicate with, uh, you know, really modern systems. There are developers on the other side that you need to actually, you know, sometimes for the first time to deal with as clients. And consumers, obviously, they become very sophisticated in terms of what they demand from a mobile application. So gone are the days where you could get away with a subpar online banking experience. Right now, Every app needs to be like the best app and it's mobile first, et cetera. And so, you know, those are some of the problems that uh, really attracted me. And then also, you know, I have an 18 years old daughter, which at that time was 15. And uh, I was thinking, okay, how would she want uh, someone to kind of, in a way, be the trusted uh, institution with which, you know, she kind of wants to trust with her financial future? What is the bank that my daughter would actually use? And how does that change from a traditional banking model that we're used to? And then, of course, the pandemic came and that kind of put us in a sort of a digital acceleration tunnel where trends that would have taken decades took a couple of years to, so, you know, help to kind of accelerate the future that I was kind of, you know, envisioning. It's so interesting to hear you connect the dots from all of these different inputs, whether that's like, quote unquote, like customer persona inputs using your, your daughter as like an analog and talking about some of just the demands of how businesses are evolving and how you as a leader of the engineering organization are synthesizing all of those together to sort of inform the trajectory. And so I wanted to get your perspective on engineering's relationship to the business and how you can't be a modern high-level engineering leader without better understanding the business or, or vice versa. So can you tell us a little bit about what you mean by that and bring us into that perspective a little bit? We introduced uh, some uh, engineering tenets or leadership tenets for engineers that really represent our mindset and how we're thinking. And the first one of them, we called it build with purpose. And build with purpose really reverses the equation that sometimes is in the minds of engineers, which is you get enamored on a solution or on a tool, and then you try to find all the possible applications. In fact, the word application kind of even suggests that. You do something and you try to find an application for it. So you apply it to, to a problem. But it should be the other way around. That's why I prefer the word service uh, to application, because you're actually servicing someone or something. So it really starts from a need. Service starts from a need is the job to be done. Application starts from the tool. So we like services over application. I love that distinction. That's great. And so the build purpose is really like, uh, you know, what Amazon would call working backwards uh, mechanism or process, which is uh, you start uh, from the customer first. You start by asking what is the problem you're trying to solve. You ask uh, 
what is the benefit that the customer will get if the problem is solved. You also ask yourself, how do you know that that was actually a problem that needed to be solved? And then you really obsess over the user experience of that. And so we started to kind of uh, essentially reverse the mindset by asking engineers uh, to write narratives and memos and, uh, and PR and FAQs, so writing a press release before the product is even conceived, uh, to try to, to see the end goal to try to see how this will actually look like, even if you were announcing it today, as you, you haven't even started building that. And then refining that vision using a narrative style, which, by the way, the narrative is like you can't hide in front of a blank piece of paper. You can definitely hide behind a PowerPoint bullet. So <laughs> narrative is so powerful uh, because you, nobody can fill the blanks. You have to fill your own blanks. <laughs> so anyway, so... That is really like the shift of mentality. And I have to say that uh, it was uh, initially uh, received uh, with a little bit of resistance, which you know it still is. But then we started to have Uber advocates and people that uh, were really finding a path of understanding of the why. And when an engineer feels empowered of really connecting a dot between your line of code and actually a customer benefit, or even better, from a customer need to your line of code, then the conversation changes. The inclusion of uh, the business people becomes uh, a default. There is no, I throw something on the other side of the wall and then something comes back. There is no wall anymore. There is a constant conversation, a constant refinement, a constant interaction with the business and with the customer, which then forces you to have to apply modern uh, software development techniques because obviously if you do all this and then you release once a quarter... (laughs) not really going to help you too much. Today, the world is so complex that it's almost like navigating a minefield. And imagine if you're not, or, a, or an asteroid field, actually. And when you navigate an asteroid field, uh, if you don't turn uh, often, <laughs> you're going to be having some surprises. And so that's why iteration is so important. You need to release sometimes multiple times a day because the world is changing in front of you and there are opportunities and obstacles that come all the time. But then what is your guiding principle? You have to have a vector. And that vector is the purpose, is why you're building it. And if you keep that in mind, then every engineer is going to start to feel not that they are a sort of a part at the end of a, of a, of a process that is more about execution. It's actually strategical. And that empowers people. And that's what actually allows, uh, you know, allowed us to also attract some of the greatest engineers by just, you know, understanding that Goldman puts a central role in the business understanding by their engineering. First off, the metaphor of navigating the asteroid field is hands down one of the best metaphors I've ever heard for iterating quickly ever of all time, Marco. That was awesome. The second, are there like specific components for the narrative? And is there a narrative example that has stood out to you that was particularly impactful or inspiring that really captured the objective or the problem of one of the customers that you all are serving? The format is uh, generally like a, a six-page narrative, or is it, or it is a press release and a series of frequently asked questions. And in the press release, you have to have customer quotes, even if those customers don't exist, because really you need to actually almost like simulate how a customer would react. And by doing that, you really try to put yourself in the customer's shoes. You always have to state uh, the problem first before you apply a solution. So the you know the narrative is always about okay, this is something that we are we have strong conviction. There is a problem that could be done better. And then these are all the possible solutions around that. But then you question even the way you go about it. So it's really about the mental model uh, around that. And then the FAQs goes uh, you know, into, into more detail. But then there is a part of that, which is kind of the harsh FAQ, where you're asking really, really hard questions to yourself. So there is no elephant in the room. And you're absolutely disarming uh, you know, introspection in a way. 
is what actually puts people in the right frame of mind. It really creates trust. And so we created the memo center. We created a bunch of guidelines. We created a lot of tools, uh, you know, for people to kind of get used to this. And then, you know, we review them together. So there is a lot of kind of, in a way, peer mentoring and, 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 uh, and a lot of learning by doing. We've done uh, initially like, you know, the, the, the initial digital strategy where we decided to end up building a set of foundational platforms uh, like an identity and access management platform, an API platform, uh, a web, uh, uh, you know, serving platform, a mobile platform, uh, uh, observability, incident management, etc. We ended up there, and that was one of the first, uh, actually one of the best narratives, by actually asking ourselves, uh, what is our promise to our customers? The promise to our customers is really a contract, is a service level, it's something that we need to stand uh, behind, and therefore, if I want customers to be able to log on safely in one place with a single set of credentials and, uh, you know, across websites and I want to deal with their data in a certain way, then I will need certain features that actually meet an outcome expectation. The outcome expectation is really like, I want to be safe, I want to be secure, I don't want to have any steps that don't make any sense and so forth. So, And then why do you need an API platform? Well, because services need to be available. Today, you can't afford to have downtime. There is no scheduled downtime. That doesn't make any sense anymore. If someone has a, a sense you like a scheduled downtime banner of some sort, you have to be skeptical about the processes behind the scenes. And uh, therefore, services need to protect themselves. And the protection, uh, I always say that uh, if you want your service levels uh, to be respected or your or values to be respected, you kind of have to enforce them yourself. Like respect does not come from the benevolence of the others. That's not a good winning formula. Respect comes from your own strength. And therefore, the service needs to protect themselves. So that's why an API platform will provide protection for all the services that are behind and go and so on and so forth. It's always the pattern of what is the job to be done or what is the problem you're trying to solve? What is your outcome expectation, which is what you expect as a customer, which sets your service levels. And then around those service levels come the functional and non-functional requirements, and that's how you build software. If you progress with this mental model and with this narrative, uh, problems are really easy to break down into components. And then you generally end up uh, with uh, something that is maybe closer to, to the truth of what you want to build, but then you need to keep yourself you know, with that level of flexibility that we talked about. And so you componentize it, you make it flexible, you make it reactively deployable, and, uh, and, and, and just rinse and repeat. Patrick here with some exciting news. We now have 10 local communities of engineering leaders hosting in-person meetups all over the world. Yes, you heard that right. There are 10 local communities in cities all over the world. These groups are led by engineering leaders just like you who wanted to create a place to connect, to share insights, and tackle critical challenges in the job. To get involved, go to elc.community. Sign up if you haven't already. If you have signed up, make sure you update your location and we'll get you plugged in. We're launching local events all the time. You can find them and get involved again at elc.community. The strength of alignment, as you're walking through the narrative of, of building up the identity platform, the API platform, event management, and everything like that, and how that started from the narrative that you wrote for sort of the internal perspective was incredibly powerful in terms of driving alignment. All of those parts or all those components of the, the different, like maintaining the service level were, were almost like natural. It's like, oh, of course, we have to do all these things. Are there other practices that you found to help the engineering organization better I guess, natively learn and understand the business part of software and like sort of the natural direction where things are going? Like, are there other tools or questions that help scale that out to all of the different teams or components of the organization? One of the ways to, uh, you know, to try to, to understand uh, if you're going in the right direction is really like uh, by 
measuring and by discussing those measurements in a critical way. And so you can obviously infer your uh, your happiness or unhappiness by asking customers but then often often what you you know the the, the biggest insights are actually from uh, understanding the behavior and from me- measuring the ways they use your services so we have uh, you know the kind of the closing the loop on those service level uh, it, it, it's how you actually do the measurements on your on your of your performance against that one thing that we instituted that ended up being quite successful was uh, we have a weekly operational meeting where we ask teams uh, to be there to review their incidents uh, together. So there is a completely blameless culture. We go down into like the five whys and we do all these techniques in order to really go to root cause. But then we also kind of, you know, like select randomly among the services, those who are actually asked to just present their metrics. And that actually creates a culture in which, first of all, you need to have metrics, <laughs> otherwise you wouldn't have nothing to present. And the fact that it's random it kind of forces you to read those metrics and to kind of have them always in front of you. In fact, sometimes I measure, you know, like a good team is in kind of understanding their service by how long it takes them to kind of pull up their dashboard. If they need to go into emails and find the link and they take five minutes later, they have it means that they really don't use it all the time. So that, you know, those are just screen share right away. Then it means that they were probably already looking at that. And then you look at latency, you look at, you know, the uh, response time, you look at every metric, but then it's not only the technical metric, it's also the business metrics. And so you look at your churn rate, you look at adoption, you look at uh, how the various cohorts have uh, a different, uh, you know, different patterns of usage, etc. And I think uh, there is kind of the other insight that uh, the operational metrics and the business metrics are kind of really two sides of the same coin, where uh, they really drive each other and you can't optimize just for one. And so, you know, by making that Part of the conversation, I think, uh, you know, that kind of changes the perspective uh, of of the engineer, which starts to be, you know, used to talk about, uh, okay, now I have uh, sort of a mirror or I have a window in front. uh, And by the way, you know, in all the habit, the bad habit of like, say, you know, in the old IT world was like, you know, being rejecting change. Like, oh my God, they're asking me to change because business people... Sometimes they have more visibility on the clients and then they send a lot of, you know, conflicting instructions. But when you start actually looking at those metrics, uh, those change of directions, they start to make change, to make sense, also to the engineers. And so back to your metaphor, uh, to the metaphor of, of, of the asteroid field. Uh, imagine if you don't have a window and if you're a passenger back then with no windows and you hear all this shaking, you think that the, the pilot is drunk. But then if you have a window, which you actually see the metrics, you see the guy avoiding all the obstacles, then you think the guy is a genius. And so it changes your perspective completely. So that's why for the engineer to have visibility into the business metrics is crucial because it makes uh, your attitude to change completely different. You know, and so change management and continuous deployment and, uh, and little rapid iteration becomes a fact of life. I picked up on a couple... A couple small words that I want to transition to a little bit more about developer experience because you've, you've shared some things about shifting people's perspective, like shifting your engineer's perspective. You've mentioned developer experience almost as like an anchor point of principle that that's guided some of these different decisions. And in just some of my background research, I know that in early 2020, Golden formed a developer experience team, and and that's been an area that that's been under your purview. And so. I was wondering if you could share a little bit about your perspective on investing in developer experience and some of the the practices that you found impactful uh, throughout that time. You know, I was actually having this discussion today with an esteemed colleague, uh, more esteemed uh, than I. I was saying, you know, a lot of companies uh, obsess over 
hiring great engineers. And so the whole focus of the top management is, oh, have we brought in, uh, you know, this this person or that person, etc. But then you don't really obsess uh, on the developer productivity too much or also on their experience on a day-to-day. Because that's sometimes, you know, not visible to the non-business, non-technical by looking at uh, developer productivity as uh, you know possibly your most important currency there because developers that are uh, not frustrated they don't feel they're doing uh, repetitive work uh, uh, they feel that they actually can they can do their best work are developers that not only are productive but they also stay in fact the number one uh, uh, reason for developers to quit and to go somewhere else is when they don't feel they can do their best work and also like having marketable skills. If you obsess over having them learn your own unique uh, Goldman-only things, uh, you know, developers at one point are going to think, okay, all this knowledge that I'm accumulating is not going to be marketable. And I'm much better off actually learning something that, you know, is universally adopted. And so that is like a good guy. So we started to kind of work on those uh, themes. And, you know, one is adopting standard tools, looking at is there something out there already before we, we build our own? Starting to be serious on open source, really serious to the point of actually open sourcing some of our own technology like Legend, which is our data modeling uh, and, and data manipulation uh, framework, uh, is something that we uh, outsource through uh, Finos, Finos uh, Open Source Foundation, giving a contribution back to other developers. We started to look at the developer funnel and how much time developers will spend uh, on uh, the most productive part of the developer process, which is, uh, you know, you're actually writing code, you're actually committing code, you're actually like coming up with ideas, etc. Rather than if you spend 90% of your time in your develop in your deployment, then you know there's probably something wrong there. And so try to automate the downstream part as much as you can. We invested in shifting left of some of the uh, best practices. So, for example, security is not an afterthought; uh, it's you know it's at the beginning, like SRE. Uh, is not an afterthought, is part of the beginning of the process. You know, like we have FinOps now, it's another world, which is like, you know, you need to think about cost, you know, very early in the process, because generally, like, you know, like, especially in a cloud environment, you have meted the usage, and so that generates cost. You know, risk ops is kind of, you know, thinking about risk and compliance uh, early in the process. And so really like trying to educate developers, but also we created a lot of tools to embed those safeties and those controls within the deployment pipeline. So... I think those are like some of the, you know, things that we've been focusing on. Yeah. And, you know, if you let me like kind of extend that, we started to think about how do we translate that to external developers, given that we have more and more uh, clients uh, that are interacting with us through their developers. Realizing for Goldman that developers are actually clients, that was kind of a, a big mind shift, which uh, I think Goldman and, you know, and David and others uh, and John really were appreciative of. And so that drove us to kind of start to start to externalize some of our offerings for developers. So we created Marquee, which is a sort of a set of uh, you know APIs and tools and, and best practices, and also like uh, tools for pre-trade and you know for analysis and for decision making and for data analysis and so forth available through an API and or or as a SaaS uh, in a SaaS model and a software as a service model. And that thinking evolved uh, into what we call the financial cloud which is essentially not only providing you with uh, the data and some tools that you can kind of manage uh, uh, you know, yourself, but actually providing you with an infrastructure with which you can manage the data. And so you can now, with one click, instantiate uh, a data pipeline, security is mastered to have uh, your own uh, 
consistent view on on, on the symbols and uh, and uh, eventually incorporate actions around those. You have a time series database that you can use for your own data or for Goldman data, and you have a series of tools like for visualization and analysis. So we give you like data and infrastructure in a box. And so that's how you, you, you start thinking. And if I look at the market opportunity, right now you see this curve. You have two diverging vectors. One is the customers and the developers need, uh, or you know, the customers need for data faster and more frequently and more accurate. So there is that. And the other is you need to actually raise your technology capabilities in order to be able to process that. And so that generally doesn't grow as fast. It's hard to evolve the technology. So in the middle, there is a huge opportunity, which is similar to what the cloud was for IT. Mm -hmm. Not everybody was able to manage, uh, you know, complex infrastructure in an optimal way. And as things got more complex, uh, uh, that created the opportunity for uh, the likes of AWS. And I think as things get more complex on the decision-making data, the quantistic part of the job, but also in general on the, on, on the experience for the customers, then this part doesn't grow as fast and there is a whole market that creates in the middle that is something that the financial cloud wants to address. This moment of identifying both your developers internally and external developers, so people a part of the open source community and the other sort of developer communities that, that you all serve, seems like it was a huge priority shift, or at least one that that essentially created an entirely new category of, of folks that you're serving. I know I've, I've read somewhere, a lot of the things that you share about how developers, like in terms of who you're serving, are the, the sort of first class citizens and clients of Goldman Sachs. Talk to us about making that priority shift. Were there any friction points or challenges and how did that become such a, a core central focus of the technology organization that these are actually the, the most important customers or, or some of the top customers that we serve, both internally within Goldman and, and externally through the different communities? Talk to us about that priority shift. That shift uh, happened fairly naturally the moment where you actually start listening to your clients because the clients were demanding more and more of that. We started to actually have clients that were starting to ask, okay, you know, I just hired a, a number of quants and a number of developers that want to talk to you. Who should I talk to? And then you start to learn uh, that not serving those developers would be like not answering the phone <laughs> for, for a client. It would, be, it would be unthinkable. And so then the question is, how do we support them? And how do we make them happy? Now we give the, communi- the right communication. And how do we start thinking about service instead of applications? How do we start externalizing and so forth? So I have to say that early on, that's also why how Marquis was born, was really born out of uh, a pattern shift uh, on our clients. Mm-hmm. And that actually is what drove, you know, given that Goldman is extremely kind of client-oriented uh, and, and service-oriented, uh, to really try to say, okay, you know what, we need to start uh, paying attention to those uh, developers because they are they are our clients. And uh, what we can do and the way we can interact and the way we can, uh, you know, form a deep relationship with our clients uh, is linked inextricably with uh, how we serve their developers. And so that's basically how, how this came, uh, came to fruition at the end of the day. And once you were aware of the opportunity and the decision was made around that, were there any unexpected challenges or areas of friction that you all navigated through that experience to, to help get to the operating place where this was normal and, and and a part of the culture? Yeah, that's a good question. So I have to say that what generally happens at that particular point, uh, uh, if you don't manage the process, uh, everybody, every group that interacts with clients uh, and developers starts to essentially create their own thing their own way to, to serve the developers. And mm-hmm. so there is a, a risk of fragmentation, which can lead to, you know, a fragmented developer experience, which then will translate in a, client, a fragmented client experience. And so 
I think we had to kind of put some back pressure to that tendency. That's why we started to ask ourselves the questions that led to the platforms, because you can't really have a uniform developer experience if you don't have that. And mm-hmm. so we started to work on, okay, let's have a single developer portal. It's developer.js.com. Everything goes there. Let's have a team that actually builds APIs for the firm. There is a single sort of a, you know, adjudicating team. You can't build your own API with your own, uh, you know, URLs and your own syntax and your, uh, you know, your own uh, paradigm and protocol like randomly because uh, developers will see through that. And so that led to, you know, forming you know, those groups that will decide on uh, on the API design. Data was kind of the next one again because. Uh, you know, if you start presenting data uh, in different ways with different data models, uh, that, of course, we did. And, of course, you know, we had to correct that, like everybody. And so that's why we started to think about uh, Alloy, which was the name of the legend before it was open source. Can we create an extensible Jameson-based data model that we can actually use to present data in a very, even the most complex of contracts, in a way that is machine-readable consistently across the firm? And so that's how you kind of peel the on and you start thinking about, uh, first of all, why do we need a consistent experience? And then you create, okay, you know, one developer portal. And then you start saying, okay, it's, it's one data model, et cetera, et cetera. So I would say that, you know, developer experience uh, is kind of a little bit of an art and it takes a while to kind of internalize. It sometimes goes against uh, the natural tendency of going super fast and, you know, and just getting to from point A to point B in the quickest way possible, which is generally not the one that actually gives you sustained velocity. And so when my people are saying, why do I have to go to the API design team? I just, I'm just going to do it. It's like, you know, speed versus velocity, right? Speed is a lot of action, but without a vector and eventually it's going to slow you down. And velocity is like speed with purpose. Okay. You might actually be, you know, definitely like, you know, if you're running a, even 800 meters against people that don't run, uh, these people that are juniors, they're going to overrun you the first 100 meters, inevitably. They're just going to run ahead of you. And that, but you catch them up at about, after about two 300 meters, depending on age. And this is the same thing. You, you, you kind of keep the course. You kind of actually start to put the tenet that uh, developers will, will see across, that will connect the dots for you. You want to actually to do that before, uh, before they do. So that, that, those are some of the challenges that we had. And, uh, and you know, we've been working through that. I have so many follow-up questions. From we, we, I think we've, we haven't even covered half of all the things that we had talked about ahead of time of what would be fun to get into. So um, this is... <laughs> we can do part two. I would absolutely love that. But I guess to, to wrap up our conversation now, Marco, we've got a couple rapid-fire questions if you're ready to get into those. Yeah, sure. All right. What are you reading or listening to right now? I'm listening to the Tim Ferriss podcast a lot. But in terms of uh, uh, books, I'm, the, the one that I'm reading at the moment is uh, a, a book from... Uh, 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 Yasha Monk is called The Great Experiment. It's like why diverse democracies fall apart and how they endure, they can endure. It's a fascinating uh, book on uh, how diverse democracies can actually thrive. And uh, I think it's so in the times right now that I'm really enjoying that. And so I kind of try to alternate uh, business books with more like books that are about the time that we live in and then some technical stuff. So this is what I'm reading right now. Great recommendations. What tool or methodology has had a big impact on you? Well, definitely the working backwards uh, mechanism, which is what we described. It is really like putting the customer first, asking yourself the questions, and then proceeding down until you finally are ready to write code. That's great. I'm excited for this next one. We're going to ask you about trends. And just based off of all of the synapses that have been shared on the show so far, I think you're going to have a good one. Uh, What's a trend that you're seeing or following that is interesting or hasn't hit the mainstream yet? So... A couple. One is, uh, well, I would say that, uh, and this is not a technical trend, but it's actually the fact that uh, 
I don't think uh, you can really effectively run a business without being fairly good with technology. And so this intersection of technology plus uh, business as a fundamental requisite for uh, anybody running a business, I think is actually one of the most important trends. And that's not a technical trend. So I would say that for sure. If you look at trends uh, more on the technology side, uh, I think uh, there will be a a, a rapid inflection point around quantum compute, and we need to be prepared for that. I've been having actually a lot of those discussions with uh, some other folks in the industry, including Pat, the CEO of Intel, but we need to be prepared for that because when it hits, it's going to hit very quickly. And therefore, all our assumptions around security, all our assumptions around uh, Monte Carlo simulations and problem solving, et cetera, might actually kind of be proven you know, untrue in a matter of months or years. So I would be paying attention to that, although it's a bit of a long trend. And then, you know, like one fascinating thing that I think is happening right now is the use of large scale language models for uh, human interaction. Remember, a few years ago, there was the promise of, oh, you know, everything is going to be a chat interface, right? And uh, uh, kind of, but then you get frustrated after two minutes, especially with chat based customer service, you want to talk to a human. When you talk to a larger, like, you know, I'm talking about, you know, the large language models, like with, you know, billions or, 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 you know, trillions of parameters, especially on a certain domain, the quality of those generative networks is such today that are actually sometimes more pleasant than talking to a human and uh, and very meaningful. <laughs> the, the, the threshold for pol- politeness and friendliness is probably way higher for, for a large language model. Um. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I think large language models applied to domains that will require a lot of expertise, I think is something that is actually sooner than quantum computer. It's something that I really, you know, I think we should pay attention to. I love it. Thank you. What has been one of the most meaningful in-person experiences with your team, company, or otherwise? Doesn't have to be the most, but something up there that has been one of the the most meaningful in-person experiences. Well, I I traveled to India after uh, two years of uh, pandemic and very very hard times for the for the team over there and for the country. And I was there in May, and I have to say that uh, seeing. Uh, our campus in there, we have like, uh, you know, something like 4,000 engineers. It's a beautiful campus in Bangalore and in Hyderabad. Seeing like how the whole team came back to life and how actually the interaction uh, with people in person that were like 80%, 90% back into the office uh, for someone like me that has started right before everything shut down, it was an unbelievable moment. And so that kind of opened my eyes of, uh, you know, how important to be actually to be together. Uh, and I'm not saying that, you know, of course, flexibility is super important, but that moment of being in India, being with my team uh, after so many years, I have have not seen them and seeing how being back together kind of brings the whole creativity and the whole environment back to life was absolutely I think there is something special about that moment where everybody is unified together and it's been a while. And to turn that into a celebration really does create energy that is hard to recreate elsewhere. And so to intentionally tap into that in those times is is so special. Yeah. That's great. That's amazing. Great. Last question, Marco. Is there a quote or a mantra that you live by or a quote that's resonating with you right now? Yeah, it's like a comfort zone is, is the biggest killer. Comfort zone is a killer is a killer of creativity, is sometimes a killer of health even. Like if you feel that you're in the comfort zone, then just question, okay, is that a signal that I need to change? You need to push yourself outside that and you need to push yourself physically, mentally, psychologically, technologically to kind of always be at the, at the edge of the comfort zone. So that tension is really what's going to keep you alive. 
a great insight to, to close us off with Marco. Where are you comfortable right now? Where's that comfort zone? And can you push that? Thank you so much for an incredible conversation covering everything from business strategy alignment. This has been incredible. Thank you. Thanks so much, Matt. If you enjoyed the episode, make sure that you click subscribe if you're listening on Apple Podcasts or follow if you're listening on Spotify. And if you love the show, we also have a ton of other ways to stay involved with the engineering leadership community. To stay up to date and learn more about all of our upcoming events, our peer groups, and other programs that are going on, head to sfelc.com. That's sfelc.com. See you next time on the Engineering Leadership Podcast.